Job 29, beginning first of all in verses 1 and 2. Hear now the word of God. And again, Job took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me. Verse 7, when I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. Verse 25, I chose their way and sat as chief, and I lived like a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. But now they laugh at me, men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. Verse 9, and now I have become their song. I am a byword to them. Verse 19, God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. Verse 29, I am a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. My skin turns black and falls from me, and my bones burn with heat. Chapter 31, verse 1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Verse 4, does he not see my ways and number all my steps? Verse 7, if my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat, and let what grows for me be rooted out. Verse 35. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Verse 40. The words of Job are ended. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. The final reflections of a person before they die. That's the theme we're looking at here today. Some of these are well known in history. July 4, 1939, Lou Gehrig, the iron horse of baseball, the longtime Yankee first baseman said, Today I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. The final sermon by R.C. Sproul, November 26, 2017. I pray with the Lord, for the Lord with all my heart that God will awaken us today to the sweetness, the loveliness, the glory of the gospel of Jesus. Lou Gehrig gave that speech and died two years later at age 37. R.C. Sproul preaches his last sermon and dies a few weeks later at age 78. Two very contrasting understandings of life and death. 
loved ones, seen as well in the last words of Frank Sinatra. As he's dying, he says, I am losing. J. Gresham Machen, the pastor, as he's on his deathbed, says, thank God for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. These words, loved ones, reveal a lot about what someone believes. And so does the end of Job 29 to 31. Job thinks he's dying here. These are, from his perspective, as far as he knows, his last words. We look first at God's goodness in the past. Job, as we have seen in these chapters, is about as low as a human can be. Sitting on an ash heap. Kids, that would be outside the city where you burn trash and poop. This is a wretched place. It's where outcasts are sent. People that are unclean. Those that no one wants to have anything to do with. And as he's there, he's thinking, perhaps daydreaming. Kids, do you daydream sometimes? Maybe about apple pie or playing the piano. Maybe you love to play the piano or doing a beautiful work of art or going for a hike. Maybe you're daydreaming right now. Job begins to think, I wish things were like how they used to be. I've heard people reflect on that a lot over the last 18 months. I wish things could be the way they used to be. As these thoughts come to our minds, we need to beware of the danger of sinful discontentment. On the other hand, as Job is reflecting here, we also can be reminded of God's goodness. He thinks back, verse 4, to the autumn of his life, the good days, the prime, so to speak. His heartfelt longing is seen here, loved ones. What is it? That God is with him. That God's face has shone upon him. He says words here very similar to what we read in the book of Numbers and Aaron and the benediction. The Lord be with you and bless you and keep you and watch over you. He's longing for the presence of God. And that's the heart of the covenant of grace. God says, I will be your God. You will be my people. He also thinks about the prosperity of those days, butter and oil. Now, kids, that maybe brings to mind in your memory a nice big pasta dinner with all this good olive oil on it or a pie with butter melting on top of it. That's part of this. Plentiful food and drink. He's remembering we're a part of those days. He thinks back to his position, verse 7, in the gate of the city. Now, for us, this doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. What is the gate of our city, kids? Christopher Ashe, I love his work on Job. He says this, Picture a blend of the Supreme Court, the White House, both houses of Congress, the most significant news media and websites, and power and influence all in one place. (laughs) That's a lot. That is the gates of the city. And Job was perhaps the most respected man in all the city of Uz. He was probably an elder, elected to that position because of his wisdom, the respect he had among the people of the city. He also may have been the town mayor. 
He may have been the chief to lead them into battle. So if a town comes after them and there's a fight that takes place, Job might have been a part of leading that brigade. He says his reputation was so great when he spoke, the young men were quiet. Wow. That's pretty rare. The young men listened to him. And the old men respected him. His words were life-giving. That's why. It wasn't because he hammered them. It's because he was filled with grace for them. Because his smile encouraged them, verse 24. It brought them joy and light and favor. He wasn't the kind of guy that showed more attention to the powerful and less to the poor. That wasn't Job at all. That's the hypocrite of James. Job helped the poor, the fatherless, the widow. That's what pure and undefiled religion is, isn't it? James 1. He himself was not being proud or self-righteous as he said this, loved ones. He's being honest. He's saying, this is what God, by his grace, has done in my life. And as he looks back in verse 18, he remembers something that young people you often don't think about, neither do I a lot of times. What is that? That there are some things we never learn the value of until we face losing them or until they're gone altogether. His health, his family, his position in society, his mind, and his dignity. All of those things at this point he thinks are gone. Back in those days, Job said, I thought I would die as a old man with my kids next to me. I never would have imagined, he thinks, in his worst nightmare that his kids would die before him. But that's what's happened. As he's meditating on God's goodness, something brings him back to the present reality of his pain. We're not told what it is. This is poetry, but it's real history. The friends are really there. The supposed friends. And he begins to realize, as we also do, we're not in charge of our lives. As Derek Thomas says, we must be ready to die at any moment. There's no settledness in this life, and we must not be so preoccupied with this present evil age and with ourself to miss the glory of Jesus and the hope of the gospel. Job goes on, secondly, to lament in the present. Verse 1 of chapter 30 begins, but now. You see that a couple of times in chapter 30. What does he mean by that? But now, everything has changed. But now, they laugh at me. Job has become the butt of jokes. So they used the name Job as kind of a laughing term. To become a Job, as Christopher Ashe says, is an idiom. It's a byword. He is the most cursed of all. He's being bruised. He's been battered throughout the book, hasn't he? And it reminds me of Thomas Watson's word. Do you know that God has set up some fences to keep in the tongue? What are the fences that God has set up for us, kids? There's two of them your lips, and your teeth. 
And God has set a third fence around them, the ninth commandment, to not bear false witness. But that's been what Job has experienced over and over again. And now, some young people, not the same ones that were respecting him before, but some others are brutally, verbally attacking him. He says of their fathers, verse 1, I wouldn't even put their dads in charge of the dogs. Now, kids, this is not golden retrievers. The dogs were the lowest of the animals. So even their dads wouldn't watch over those dogs, he says. These young people, Ash says, have no energy, no stamina, no concentration, no skills, no sense. If you took them on at work, they would be on permanent sick leave. These young people, he's saying, verse 8, this is pretty brutal. They're senseless. They're nameless. So what Job is telling us is he is an outcast among the outcasts. These are young people who are gangs, who spend the nights roaming and taunting and insulting. Job is being mocked by them. Job is an object of ridicule among them. Kids, just an aside in terms of friendship. One of our elders, Walt, mentioned that earlier today. One of the most difficult things in life, kids, is when someone who you think is your friend stabs you in the back. Someone that you trust and love and maybe even share intimate struggles with turns around and uses that against you. And that may happen to you. Maybe it already has. And adults, maybe it's happened over and over. It may happen at school, at home, in the neighborhood, and sometimes horribly at church. We know that among you here and online, some of you have come from very bad church situations, perhaps, where this kind of thing has happened. And we want you to know we love you. We're patient with you. We want to listen to you. We want to pray with you. And we respect you. And we all come with struggles. We all come with things, temptations and difficulties. And we need each other to bear each other's burdens. Job is showing you what happens when that is turned against you. When you say something that's very dear to you, and then it's turned back on you. And may God give us grace not to treat each other like that here, but to do the opposite, to encourage, to edify, to build each other up. Job goes on. He's wrestling here. The agony, the accusations, the mistreatment, and now he's wrestling with something even harder. He's saying, verse 11, someone has taken away his cord. And picture a tent that you're sleeping in and the tent collapses on top of you. Well, that's what our earthly body's like, Paul says. It's a tent. It gets old, it gets weak, it gets frail, it breaks down. Who has done this to Job? Who has collapsed his tent? Who has taken away his strength? What does he say? He says God has done this. He's wrestling with the silence and the seeming injustice of God. He's saying, God, you're cruel. You don't care for me. What loving parent would watch while their child is in pain? I haven't heard from you, God, throughout the whole book. You're more like a tornado to me than a refuge. Answer me, God. I'm in pain here. He's lamenting. That's what he's doing. 
A prayer of lament is a cry in pain. It brings complaints, and it leads to trust in God, but it doesn't ignore the pain. It doesn't say everything's okay. Tim Challies, a pastor who some of you know well, has been grieving the death of his 20-year-old son. His son died last November. He says, My shepherd has called me to walk a difficult path of sorrow, of grief, of tears. It's unfamiliar to me, but it's known to him. He says, God's counsel will stand. I can have confidence in God that he is my shepherd and that goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Right now, Job doesn't feel that way. His cry from dealing with God's seeming silence moves on to his physical affliction. He has days of affliction, nights of agony. His whole soul is drained away. He feels like his clothes are choking him. He has no strength left. He's anxious. He's weary. He has no companionship except what? Two animals he lists. No friends. He feels God is far away. Where are the animals? He says the jackal and the ostrich. Verse 28. That's all I got. These animals are known for their whining, wailing, howling, cry. And Job is feeling that's all that's left for me. His skin is discolored. His wounds stink. No one wants to come near him. His fever is raging. And at the end of chapter 30, he's singing the song at his own funeral. Third, so he makes one final appeal to God. Job 31 doesn't make a lot of sense until we see it in light of what we just saw. The book of Job, loved ones, is structured in threes. Three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, three rounds of three speeches. After the speeches are done, that's where we are right now, we hear from Job, then from Elihu, then from God. Three final speeches to end the book. Job's speech in chapter 31 is filled with references to the Ten Commandments, to the Sermon on the Mount, way before they were written down. And there's a structure here of sexual fidelity, economic fidelity, political fidelity. Peter Wallace tells us, the blessings of Abraham are seen here as well, even though Job wasn't in the line of Abraham. When you read this chapter, you see blessings of offspring, children, blessings of the land, Blessings to the nations. That's the structure here as Job begins chapter 31 with the word covenant. Very interesting. The Old Testament Mosaic covenant is related to God's relationship with Israel as a nation. Before that is the Abrahamic covenant where God passes through those pieces of animals and says to Abraham, I am your God, you are my people. May I become like those dead animals in Genesis 15 if I, the Lord, don't keep my promises to you, Abraham. And that Abrahamic covenant 
is itself the continuing outworking of the covenant of grace God promised to Adam and Eve. Back in Genesis 3.15, that God will send a champion Messiah to crush the head of the serpent. Job is not in Abraham's line, but Job is given the grace of that Abrahamic, of that covenant of grace made with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. It's amazing how God is preserving Job here. But this covenant, Job says, he makes with himself. See that? He's making it with his eyes, with his own conscience. He's saying, this is a covenant of if-then. If I have not been faithful, if I've been a hypocrite and a fake, then the covenant curses should come upon me. It's actually very similar to ancient Hittite treaties. The Hittites had covenants like this where they say, if the soldier fails to protect or abandons his guard, the commander has the right to break his arm, to take his crops, or to take his wife. And all those things are seen here in the book of Job. This is an incredible chapter. It's a chapter of an oath of covenant allegiance. Job has a lawsuit against God. Job wants to hear from God. God hasn't answered him. He can't understand why that hasn't happened. He says, I've been a man of integrity, not sinless. He's not claiming to be sinless here. This chapter is stating his innocence. I've not done what the friends claimed I've done. And he goes into all of these areas of our life. Lust and lying, coveting and wealth, idolatry, hatred towards enemies, hiding sin, abusing God's creation. He talks about all those things. And he gets at the point which we all understand. The law is not about outward, external obedience. It's about the inner heart attitude and desire that leads to outward love for God and obeying his law. He understands sins have names. And he's talking about the nature of sin here hundreds of years before Moses and the law was given. How could that be? As one writer says, because the law of God is written on the heart. In our conscience, Job wants to show he has internalized God's law. Now, the conscience, as he's talking about this covenant here, does not supersede God's law. Our conscience is bound by God's word. But if we say in our conscience, I believe this, even if God's law says that, the problem is with our conscience, not with God's law. Our conscience needs to be recalibrated according to God's word as we are changed more into the image of Jesus. That's what we see in verse 1, a covenant with his eyes. What do the eyes express? The eyes express the desire of the heart. 1 John talks about the lust of the eyes. God warns his people in the Old Testament, don't choose what your eyes desire and don't do what's right where? In your own eyes. But that's naturally how we think. We want what makes us feel good. We want what the eyes see, and what the eyes see, the heart is desiring. 
Job is talking all about body parts in here. The eyes, the feet, the hands, the arm. What's his focus in verse 1? I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Some of you have heard of the internet software Covenant Eyes. This is the verse that they often take some of what they do from. What's he talking about with a virgin? An attractive, desirable young woman who's not his wife. When you gaze at a woman or women at men and you contemplate them for your own selfish pleasure, you are lusting and not loving. Lust is the opposite of love. And here's Job talking about this reality before the days of Abraham. He's saying, I won't desire this woman who's not my wife for sexual pleasure. I won't fantasize about her. I won't fall into this wretched idea that, oh, it's just one look. As long as I look, it's no big deal. As long as I gaze at the menu and don't order something, it's not that big of a deal, right? Job realizes, Matthew 5, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery with her already in your heart. Sermon on the Mount. All sexual uncleanness and fornication is the devil's work. It's sinful, and all of it is an act of hatred. It's the opposite of love. Sin is our condition. Lust is a fire, an enemy within. Do you remember the fellowship of the ring? They're craving and lusting, wanting this ring, and all of them will fall. So what does Frodo do? He flees on his own, and he finds righteous Aragorn. And Aragorn says, I'll protect you, Frodo. And then Frodo says this, can you protect me from yourself? Sin is deceitful. Sin loves to sin. Sin loves to make evil look pleasurable and evil look normal. Sin calls evil good and good evil. And we cannot speak of this verse, loved ones, without talking about the evil of pornography. Pornography is the devil's work. Lust, murder, and lies. Pornography does all three. Because of the lust for money and power, men denigrate women and they turn them into objects. They seek to destroy the image of God in them and they lie and pretend it does no harm and everyone's doing it. It is lust. Lust is not just a sexual problem. It uses people to gratify the self. It's covetousness. Some say the solution then is to try to ignore women or women ignore men. So if gazing is sinful, like Job says, then the solution is don't even look at the person. That's the lie, loved ones, of the Pharisee. As one person says, the Pharisee builds a fence around the law so that a person guarantees their fidelity to the law by making sure they cannot get anywhere close to breaking it. One of the categories of Pharisees in the Jewish Talmud was the bruised Pharisee. Todd Bordeaux talks about this. 
Why would they call them bruised? Because they would walk into walls, literally, when they saw a young woman on the street because they would cover their eyes with their hands. That, loved ones, is not loving. You cannot love a person by ignoring them. Covering your eyes to keep you from lusting after a woman or a man doesn't get at the root problem because it doesn't change your heart from lust to love. It teaches you that the opposite sex is trying to entice you. So it must be their fault. Job is not so foolish as to blame a woman for a man being enticed. The Bible never does that. Pornography is the sin of the person watching it. The fault is in the eyes of the heart watching it, not in how much skin someone is showing or what they're wearing or not wearing as you walk around on the street. Here's what Bordeaux says. Jesus didn't avoid looking at women, did he? He saw women with complete love and no lust. And we need to see the person we're looking at, however old or young, men or women, as humans made in God's image, not as objects to be used. If that was your sister, what would you think about someone watching her? If that was your mother or your wife, the porn industry is sleazy and abusive. It's based on enslaving, hurting, dominating, and using up and discarding men and women made in God's image. When people consume pornography, when they click on a link, they are financing murderers, sex traffickers, and liars. Money is going into their pockets as, as links are clicked to destroy women and men, boys and girls, and sex trafficking and abuse is being financed. We often don't Think about the evil behind the evil. Job says, lust is a fire that will destroy everything he possesses. There's a cosmic dimension here. The fire of unholy passion consumes everything in its path. And why does Job say this, verse 2? Because he has a deep sense of the presence of God. That's why. Job knows God sees what he does. God hears what he thinks. He lives in the presence of God his whole life, and so do we, loved ones. We are weak, we are tempted, we are sinful, but we have the Holy Spirit. Dear Christian, the new covenant in Christ is an inside-out covenant. God gives you the grace to repent. The ministry of the Holy Spirit changes your heart, because someone can use covenant eyes and say, I'm off pornography, and if the heart's not changed, they just start using someone in another area of life. Because they look at people as using. What do I get out of them? But change comes from the heart. Lust needs to be replaced by something. What is that? Love. Not just running from it, not covering our eyes and bouncing into walls, but loving that person, respecting that. Christian, you have a new heart. Sin doesn't have dominion over you. You are united to Christ. You are a new creation. Christ lives in you. Every spiritual blessing. 
in Christ is yours by faith. And this is not just spiritual. It affects your body. That's what I mean by that. Jesus died to, produce, to, to purchase your body and soul. Your body belongs to Jesus. And your union with Christ means your eyes, your hand, your feet. That's Christ living in you by the Holy Spirit. So as obedient children, Peter says, don't be conformed to those passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you shall be holy for I am holy. To seek after holiness is not to seek after this thing. It's to seek God himself in Christ. Jesus is the one we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, Paul says, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Loved ones, that's why we're talking about this today in Job. The text talks about it. Discipleship is a struggle and a war. You're clothed with the righteousness of Jesus, the armor of God, and we wage war against sin in the Spirit. That means pornography. That means any sin that destroys us. And we pray that God would give us Christ's love for his people. That's what needs to happen. When you see someone being used in pornography, then you begin to hate it. Like a person who once was enslaved to cigarettes, and a few years later, after they stopped smoking, they can't stand the smell of it. It's repulsive to them. They went from loving it and needing it to being disgusted by it. That's how a person, by the grace of God, can be in their hotel room alone on business travel and be disgusted by the thought of looking at something. If you're struggling with this, come and talk to us. We want you to see the beauty, the glory, the power of Christ. We want to help each other in all of these areas of sin that we're struggling with. Everyone is dealing with different issues, and we need to be reminded of what we have, which is the Holy Spirit of God in us, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Jesus didn't trade his life on the cross so we could have a mediocre life. He bore the penalty of sin. He broke the power of sin in us. And we're called to combat sin in the context of the covenant community, right here, together, through the supernatural power of the gospel of the risen Jesus. Job talks about a lot of other sins here. Falsehood and deceit. He says, verse 8, If I have been deceitful to my neighbor, may all my food be taken away. (laughs) What's he saying there? He's saying, I have not been this way. My friends have claimed that I'm a dishonest businessman, but that's not who I am. He goes on and talks about how he treats his servants. Loved ones, God will ask us, how do you treat other people in your life? God's word asks us that today. How do you treat your boss or your employee? How do you treat your friend or your brother or your sister? How do you treat your wife? How do you treat your husband? Sometimes we think, well, you don't know what it's like to live with this person. And we pour out the venom of our self-righteous anger 
But Job knows we're all made in God's image. We will all answer to God. And to abuse those made by God, created in God's image, brings God's wrath on the head. Do you see why Job says this about his co-workers, his servants? Because he's in the presence of God. This is what motivates Job to holiness. God's presence, God's grace, God's word. It's why he was generous with those who were needy. It's why he was hospitable to those who didn't have a place to lay their head. It's why he says in this chapter, I have not put my confidence in my money. I'm not trusting in my treasure or my riches. It's why he says, when my enemy struggles and the person I hate, who I'm called to love, but deep down I really despise them, when that person who has been so harsh to me comes upon hard times themselves, what are we tempted to do? To smirk? To say, well, they're getting what is coming to them? God says, vengeance is mine. There's no place in the Bible for selfish, vengeful delight. Job talks about that here. And he says, verse 33, if I've concealed my sins like Adam, that's the literal phrase in verse 33. If I've covered these things up, then the curses of the covenant should come on me. Why would he want to cover them up? Because he's afraid of what people will think. Why do any of us cover up sin? Because we think we can hide from God and we don't want people to find out. But Job lives in the presence of God. He confessed his sins. He confessed his children's sins. He's not a double-minded man. He says, God, I want you to be witness. If, verse 38, I have eaten the yield of the ground without payment. Interesting. Job, in some ways, is like a new Adam. He's saying, if I've done what Adam did, then a curse should come on the ground. If I'm guilty of all these sins related to my personal life, my family life, my business life, my public life, then, God, I should be damned. Let the Almighty answer me, he says, verse 35. This is his signature. He's putting an X over the document. He's signing it, saying, here I am, God. I want you to answer me. You have been silent. It's time for you to speak up, God. If you don't speak up, then I am vindicated. That's what he's saying here. It's an astounding chapter. He's run out of patience. Yes, James talks about the patience of Job, but he's a sinful man. Justified yet sinful like we are in Christ. What do you make of this? I'd love to have a discussion right now. We can't. What do you make of what Job said? Some people say he went too far. He's arrogant. He's self-righteous. He's bordering on or has really done what Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar have done here. And Elihu will answer him. And Elihu will criticize him. What do you think? Job's not claiming to be innocent. In some ways, this is an open-ended question. Elihu will answer him. My thoughts, 
as the commentaries are divided here, is that Job says things that are true of him by the grace of God, but he does border on going too far with some of what he says. At times, there's some arrogance here. Elihu will deal with that. But even more than that, God will. But God will deal with it not to hammer Job. God will answer Job at the end of this book. He will come to Job in the whirlwind. But God's ultimate answer of grace is found in Jesus. Because Job is a shadow pointing you forward to the coming of one who is truly righteous and will suffer for unrighteous sinners. To one who's truly mocked by enemies and by those who claimed to be his friends and betrayed him. By one who died on the cross and did not return insult for insult, but was made sin for us, the sinless son of God. That's the one Job is pointing to here. Jesus, the one who loved those who were fatherless and widows. The one who spent time with tax collectors and sinners. We're all sinners. The one who said, I came to seek and save the lost. Jesus, the one who says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Jesus is God's ultimate answer to Job's suffering and in an even more profound way to the covenant. Jesus took the self-maledictory oaths that Job swore on himself, on himself, by fulfilling the covenant of redemption with the Father and the Holy Spirit from before the world existed, to redeem his elect, to save his people, by fulfilling the covenant where Adam broke it. Jesus is the perfect covenant keeper of the covenant of works. Jesus is the mediator of the covenant of grace. Jesus says to you, if you trust in me, you are no longer in Adam no longer dead, but now you have justification and new birth and everlasting life. Jesus, who passed between the pieces of animals that God himself passed between in Genesis 15 with Abraham. Jesus, who said at the Last Supper, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many in forgiveness of sins. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the holy, pure Son of God who went to the cross in our place doing the Father's will because he loved us. Father, our Lord Jesus, who not only went to the cross but rose from the dead, is our only hope. He is our wisdom. He is our strength. He is our righteousness. He is our godliness. He is our redemption. O Lord, have mercy upon us.